You're listening to Always Player One, a solo board gaming podcast. Hello and welcome to Always Player One. I'm Scruffy. And I'm Norm. And today we're going to be talking about PAX Premier 2nd Edition and Otoma decks in general. It's also worth pointing out we have a special guest this episode. His name is Steve Schlepphurst. He is the designer of several Otoma decks and he'll tell you about all that himself in a moment. Before we jump into the main topic, some quick bit of housekeeping that we need to get out of the way. Just want to inform you all that we are now into the second round of the Mage Knight tournament, which is going on on our Discord. We have three people eliminated and 12 people make it through to round two. I'm pleased to say Scruffy and I are are in that as well. (laughs) (laughs) So that's that's really fun. If you want to keep an eye and see how that develops, you can join the Discord. The links to that are in the description. We'll also be doing a live stream on the day before Halloween. Um, It's a Halloween special. has absolutely nothing to do with games. Scruffy and I are just going to be chatting about some of our favorite horror movies over on Twitch. So if you're in the Discord or you want to join the Discord, you'll get notifications of that and when we are going to be going live. So that's all very exciting. With that out of the way, um, that's all I have to plug this episode, I promise. With all of that out of the way, Scruffy, why don't you tell us a little bit about Pax Premier? Sure thing. So uh, Pax Premier is a one to five player game in which you play as Afghan leaders competing through political alliances and covert operations to rise to power. The main game board is a map split into six territories, and each player has their own area in which to play cards, which form their court. There are three different armies in the game, the Afghan, British and Russian armies. Players will start the game by setting their loyalty to one of these armies, and this can change as the game goes on at a price. The aim of the game is to gain victory points, awarded during the four dominance checks. If ever a player is four points ahead of all other players, the game ends immediately. Otherwise, it will end after the fourth dominance check occurs, this last one being worth double points. On a player's turn, they may take two actions and any additional bonus actions available to them. The main actions are to buy a card from the market or play a card from their hand. Every card has an effect when it is played, usually adding tokens or armies to play with varying effects. Cards in play form a player's court and have abilities which can be used as main actions or as bonus actions, provided their suit matches the one in effect. Players are limited in how many cards they may keep in their hand and in their court, so this is another consideration when choosing which card to buy from the market. The market is split into two rows with six cards in each. The cost for buying a card ranges from zero to five rupees, depending on its position in the market. And when bought, the money spent is always placed on the lower cost cards in the same rows, making the cheaper cards even more appealing. At the end of a turn, the market cards are slid down to fill in any holes and new cards are drawn. The four dominance check cards will also become available in the market and, when bought, or if there are ever two in the market at the same time, trigger a dominance check. Today we will be focusing on the Wakan, an automa deck of 24 cards designed to stand in as another player. This can be used in solo games or in multiplayer games. The rules the Wakan follows 
are different from the players as they are able to take and play cards as one action, radicalizing. There are some other changes in how the Wakan interacts with the game, for example being loyal to all factions at once, but they score in the same way as players so their general goals are similar. On the Wakan's turn, one of its cards is flipped over and it takes one of the three printed actions on the card, starting with the first one, taking it if possible, and moving on to the next if not. Once two actions have been taken, the Wakan takes any bonus actions available in its court and then ends its turn. The game ends the same way as in multiplayer, and the player or Naughty Cheaty AI with the most points wins. That is Pax Premier in a nutshell. Yeah, I think you nailed it. The only thing I might add is that the Wakan can only be used in one player or two player games, not in uh, higher player counts, or at least that's what the rule book says. Right, oh. I see no reason why you wouldn't be able to add it in, but it's not an official rule. Uh, we, we've played with with both one and two, so that was exciting. But without any further ado, let's go ahead and welcome our guest. Steve, how are you? Hi, I'm doing well. Thanks for so much for having me. No problem. Thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. Before we uh, dive into the main topic, uh, for our listeners who may not know who you are, why don't you go ahead and let our listeners know a little bit about how you got into the gaming hobby, what kind of games you enjoy, and what it is you do in the hobby and the industry itself. Sure. So I uh, grew up playing some games, I think especially collectible card games and, and Magic the Gathering in particular. And I played competitive card games off and on for a while. And then about five years ago, I got into hobby board games and started playing all sorts of things. So I'm kind of a omni-gamer all over the map. And I enjoy lighter games. Um, my kids and I play a lot of uh, Santorini or Love Letter. And I have been sort of diving deeper into 18xx and that sort of the, that side of the spectrum as well. Yeah. Very nice. <laughs> I knew you wouldn't be able to hold it back then, Norm. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Sorry for interrupting, Steve. Please go on. No, no problem. And I have um, I have three daughters now, all all six and under. And this this sort of over the last couple of years has put me into the position where I think a lot of a lot of gamers find themselves, and probably a lot of your listeners find themselves, where my interest in gaming and in participating in gaming uh, exceeds the time that I have to to actually play games. Yes. <laughs> And, and so uh, along the way, I sort of picked up solo gaming as a way to, you know, to not just buy games and look at them as my hobby time, but to actually play games even when I can't go meet up with friends. What a crazy idea. <laughs> so um, when, I, when I started doing that, I began with, you know, the, the games that are best built for that. So uh, I, I still play a lot of dedicated solo games or cooperative games that make sense to play solo. Too Many Bones, uh, Street Masters. What else? Arkham Horror, the card game, a lot of these kinds of games. But I also found that I, I was very interested in the middle chunk of the hobby, where a lot of the hotness on BGG comes from. So games by Simone Luciani and Uwe Rosenberg and Stonemaier Games, these games that are coming out that are solidly into the medium weight euro territory, where a lot of fun systems are coming out, a lot of fun things are being done. And many of the games fall into a style that they are these sort of logistics efficiency puzzles that 
are, are not quite multiplayer solitaire, which is usually a pejorative, but there, there is definitely a, an individual puzzle to figure out that engages with other players in, in a more qualified sense than direct competition. And so as I started getting deeper into those types of games, it seemed to me that there wasn't a lot of reason to not be able to play those, play some version of those games solo as well. Mm. And so like a lot of solo gamers, I probably started with the, you know, the two-handed mode where I just, I pick and, you know, sort of name my two imaginary halves of my psyche and play them against each other. And <laughs> uh, this, this part of me is going to run this strategy, this game, and then the other half of me is going to run this strategy. And that's, that can be fun for some games and it gives a chance to sort of explore the system and get to see how, you know, how scoring works, how the different decisions points work, but it can never quite be as satisfying as you'd like because you're always in the weird position of either competing with yourself or cooperating with yourself. And it, it doesn't have the full challenge that some other solo games have. And so I started uh, getting into the world of Automa decks and systems designed to replace opponents in a multiplayer competitive game that can maintain the key interaction points of a game and, and give you a way to sort of have a tension to push against in the game. And, and through doing that, I, I got into some of the fan-made solo Automa online, some of the official Automa that have been released in increasing numbers in the last few years. And I have uh, designed a couple of those myself. So I put together a fan-made Automa for Great Western Trail on um, BGG, which is, is called Garth. Um, so there was already an Automa called Briscoe on the internet. And I, I started sort of with the Briscoe and built some different divergent paths on top of that and added some new cards and some new abilities and some different features and, and made my own Automa. And then a few years ago, there was an active Kickstarter for the game Gugong. And I actually contacted the publisher during the Kickstarter and offered to take a swing at designing a solo mode. It looked like a game that was really interesting to me, and it had a lot of interesting decisions in the game. And like a lot of medium-weight Euros, I didn't see any reason that there couldn't be a way to play it solo. And I built a simple Automa for them, and I sent it in, and they liked it enough to include it in the published project. That must have been really exciting. Yeah, it was. I, I sent it in, and I got you know I got an initial email from them, which which felt kind, though perhaps patronizing. Like, well, okay, you know, you can. <laughs> You can see what you come up with, but we'll maybe consider a solo mode. We're not sure about this. And then a couple months later, they emailed back and said, oh, actually, we played this and it's brilliant. We'd like to make it into the core game. That's really awesome. Through sort of playing with that, I eventually ended up in the industry. So I work doing development and production now for Genius Games and Artana and work on in-house development, including solo modes, but also including other aspects of the games that we publish. Wow, yeah, that's a, a, lot to, a lot to unpack there and a lot, of, uh, a lot of really cool, interesting stuff. So you say you did, uh, you did Garth before you did the Automa for Gugon. Is that right? Yeah. Garth, Garth really began as uh, a guy named Will Gherkin had put out uh, his own Automa, and I basically started with that. And honestly, as I've talked to people who are interested in entering the hobby, a lot of people you know, would like to design the next, you know, Brass Birmingham or something like that. They, they set their, you know, they want to make this perfect, huge, sprawling economic logistics game. And one of the best ways to get involved in doing smaller design projects is to take a game that you really like and build a solo mode for it. It's a really interesting way to, to build on top of 
a set of stable systems and to see how making small changes affects your work. And it's very satisfying to complete something like that and, and see what is challenging about it and what is fun about it. Cool. Just bringing things back to PAX for a moment. Norm, Norm tells me you're a bit of a fan of PAX. Is that right to say that you, uh, you enjoy PAX? Have you played it solo or just multiplayer? What's your experience with, with PAX Premier? Yeah, I've, I've probably played it maybe a half dozen times multiplayer and a dozen times solo. So uh, not a ton. I'm definitely not an expert at it. But I feel like as I have played different solo modes and different games which have Automa decks and designed a couple of them, I have a sort of rubric in my head for what makes a really good Automa. Uh-huh. And in, in many ways, Pamir is, is just one of the, the strongest all-around games where it, it checks so many boxes for what makes a really engaging solo play that feels like it has a lot of personality to it and can be dynamic in different ways. So it's it's probably my favorite Automa game, like a like Automa in a particular definition. I know I know last week y'all talked some about what makes an Automa or an AI or what's the right term and how do we you know make up these categories, but for a certain definition of Automa, it's probably my favorite. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is an artificial player, like we we mentioned last episode, where it's 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 meant to stand in for a player. But I think in some ways it breaks the rules so much that it kind of moves to being something a bit different. Did you do you agree with that? Definitely. Yeah, I think it. I mean, it explicitly sets out to. Uh, I think in the rules they say Wakan doesn't represent another player so much as a radical ideology that is attempting to leverage the co- all three coalitions to her own ends. And mm-hmm. so she's playing with a different set of thematic and in-game rules that she's almost able to simulate a... Like, it doesn't feel like a two-player game to play against Wakan. It feels like a three- or four-player game. And she is pulling different strings in different directions with more efficiency, but perhaps less intelligence than a human player. Could. Yeah, that's a really interesting interpretation. I, I've not really thought of it as, as seeing Wakana's multiple other players, but it, yeah, when you say when you say that out loud, that's something I didn't consider when I when I played at all. But for sure, yeah, it, it does feel like that. I have a, a bit of a a kind of already a love hate relationship. I've only played the game solo a few times, not even as many as you, but. I've kind of gone on a bit of a weird journey playing with Wakan and and liking it a lot and then really disliking some things about it, which we'll probably unpack in a bit in the episode. But that's, a yeah, definitely the idea of the Wakan as more than one player kind of fixes some of the the negative feelings potentially I got from it as being a very overpowered player, but also in some ways quite an underpowered player once you start to learn its its rule sets. How did you find it, Norm? Yeah, I think, oh, gosh, there's a lot to unpack with the Wakan, right? I think that Steve is correct. It does feel like playing not against one other player, but potentially more than one. Like you say, plays with the efficiency of two, but not quite the intelligence. I think that's kind of where the fun is for me. It's finding the points at which you can exploit it when it doesn't make a very clever move, I kind of feel relieved because most of the time it is very good. So when it doesn't make those smart moves and when it does leave itself a bit vulnerable, those are the moments where I kind of 
punch the air and go, yes, I can breathe. It does It does kind of make you feel like, ah, I got you, you horrible thing. Because at the start, at least for me, it was incredibly punishing. I don't know if that's the same for you two as well, but it's radicalized move of being able to take what is essentially double your turns. It just it absolutely mops the floor with you while you're learning the game and, and figuring finding your feet with it. But then when you start realizing, actually, what I can do is I can you know, make it struggle and, and not do very powerful moves. And even when I played, I managed to make it miss an entire action. Oh my God, that was something special. That Yeah, that is kind of quite a satisfying feeling. And it's satisfying because it's not the case. It's not a very, it it, it does make those, like you said, those silly moves and it, it, you can exploit it, but it doesn't happen all the time. Mm. Quite a lot of the time, it's actually putting you against the ropes you know it might be able to get spies out twice as fast as you do or it suddenly changes suits and now it wipes out all of your dominance that you thought you were going to to score next turn you know moments like that happen quite often so when you when it does leave itself vulnerable it is a, a an outstanding feeling now i wanted to sort of talk about packs more broadly but you said something really interesting steve a moment ago you said about how designing ais and automadex has giving you this kind of checklist of what you think makes up for a good Otoma. I was wondering if you might be able to share that checklist with us and see how much we agree or have in common and how many crossovers there are, because we certainly spoke about that to a lesser extent last episode. Sure. One of the, I think that y'all talked some last time about what definition is even appropriate and do you call, how do you think of the pandemic infection deck versus you know, the, the enemies in Gloomhaven, which are, you know, have, have a script of moves that they take from a deck that you flip. And when I think about uh, Automa, which is, so for those who are unfamiliar, this is Morton Peterson's term from Viticulture in 2013. There were obviously systems like this in place before 2013, but the Automa factory designed this deck that was intended to replace a human player in a competitive game to enable solo play. So this is not, this is, this is looking at solo games born out of multiplayer games by replacing the human players with a semi-intelligent deck of cards. And usually this is adding some level of unpredictability and some level of competing over objectives. And usually it's cheating. Uh, against you. And so I we were, I think I was in the discussion on the Discord earlier today where I was saying, yeah, usually what they do, an Automa does, is it has some degree of logic that it makes moves that make sense and some degree of unpredictability. And the gap between the most logical move and the unpredictable move which it makes is usually covered up by cheating to some extent. And so it's going to take little advantages and Wakan certainly has that in radicalizing in a single action yeah i didn't mince my words at the start in the in the description there where i said that it does it is a naughty cheaty ai it, it feels like on its turn it's it's just breaking the rules so much that it, to some extent it creates a really nice conflict there where you you feel animosity towards it so when it does make a mistake and buys spends loads of rupees on a card that basically gives it not very much because of the way it's it's AI is designed you feel a, a sense of relief but also a sense of kind of that you're smarter than it <laughs> even though it's cheating which is quite a nice view for sure one of my favorite moments playing against wakan both thematically and you know strategically is when as as soon as so for those not familiar with the game there are these these punctuated scoring points that come up but are player driven throughout the game the dominant checks 
yeah, the dominance checks will resolve in one of two ways. And the idea is that as you're a tribal leader in this Afghani area, if a particular coalition, so either the, the British or the Russians or the Afghans are dominant, then the check will resolve in one kind of way. And whoever has scored the most influence with the leading coalition will get the most points. But if no coalition is particularly dominant, then whoever has the most sort of independent influence in the area will score the most points. And one of Wakan's programmed behaviors is as soon as a dominance check hits the market, she just laser focuses in on whichever she perceives to be the way that that dominance check is going to go down. So one of the most common lines that I'll take in games where I do well is if my coalition is winning but not quite dominant, then Wakan will set her sights on placing a bunch of discs on the board and spend her turns getting out a lot of discs. And then finally on my turn, uh, I'll be able to drop the last couple blocks so that my coalition takes over dominance and then buy the dominance check and score the most points. And the, the sense that I always have in that action is that, you know, she has seen an unstable contested region and she's tried to secure her forces and her own interests. And at the last moment, I throw this extra power behind the Russians or something. And then I, I score the dominance check and, and I'm sort of coming in unexpected and adding power to the Russians that she didn't, you know, anticipate and able to outscore her sort of at the last moment. And by, and by setting her agenda in a way that I can exploit, it really has the feeling both of outthinking her, but also of being this sort of scrappy, insignificant fighter in this larger battle that you're sort of wrapped up in. And you're just able to eke out a small advantage by participating in a larger battle at the last It time. does feel the most like how you play against another player. When I saw that mechanic, I was quite impressed because when you play against other players, often they will just meander around and take turns establishing a good position until the objective comes into focus, the dominance check in this case. And then they'll, like you say, laser focus on that and start playing for it. And the best way to outplay a player is misdirection, allow them to build up towards one end and pull the rug from under their feet. It's dangerous with the Wakan, of course, because they can buy the dominance check. So if um, if they have enough money when the dominance check is available and they will score because they have, like you say, focused in and put all the uh, all their tokens out, then they could buy the check and steal the victory from you, which uh, which is an interesting conflict. Yeah, the, the tension that creates is really fantastic. Whenever I see a dominance check come into focus, I don't just have to think about, okay, how am I going to score this? I have to think, oh my goodness, this Wakan is now going to change her actions completely and really try to, to force the issue. Mm. It's one of my absolute favorite mechanisms in the games and especially one of my favorite things about how the Wakan works. I think, I think in the rules it's called the Wakan's ambition. Yes. And it's what separates it from some, I'd say, not as well-designed automas in, in the way that she has a pre-programmed set of behaviors but then a completely other pre-programmed set of behaviors for when the scoring is going to take place. And yeah, that really, that blew me away. I really, really enjoyed that. It wraps up the tension so nicely. And I'm glad that you two mentioned it as well. Yeah, this is a good, I think, transition into the discussion of what makes a good Atoma. So, so maybe this is my sort of short list on these. So here are the, the, thing, the main things that I look for or that I intend to keep in mind in trying to create an automa is I want something that's simple to deterministically operate. 
you know, I want October turns to take 15 seconds or something like that. And I don't want a lot of times where decisions are left up to the player. I don't want systems that say, you know, the, here the player decides what it seems like the automobile would probably do. That's bad. Sometimes you, you can kind of punt on that kind of thing by saying this is left up to the player and the player gets to take an advantage by making the stupidest possible move for the automa. And that's a nice way to solve complicated problems, but you can't mm. do that too much, I think. I want a system that abstracts internal bookkeeping. So what do we mean by that? If the automa player would normally need to manage their finances and their different resources and things like that, I don't want to have to keep track of all that. I don't want to have to keep track of how many resources the automa has all the yes, time. Yes, absolutely. This is something that, again, Morton Peterson does really well, I think, with the Automa Factory stuff. He wrote a very good article several years ago about how to make an Automa system and sort of walks through his process for designing one. And he starts by cataloging what are all of the points in this system where players interact with each other, where there's these key interaction points. And how do we preserve the interaction points and then abstract everything else? So we don't want the player to have to do bookkeeping for the Automa if there's a way to take the system out of the game entirely. That makes a lot of sense. I played uh, the Brass Birmingham Automa. There's a there's a fan-made Brass Birmingham. This is one of the um, Automa. It's made by a guy named Nero Gibertoni. And I played that a couple days ago. I had been very hesitant to play it because Brass is such a, an interactive game that it felt like there's no way this is going to preserve that very well. And actually, it was a wonderful system that had a lot of really interesting decisions and it pushed back in a lot of interesting ways. But you didn't have to keep track of the Automa's money or of turn order or of its income or loans or anything like that. It didn't have cards. It just took half of the game or three quarters of the game out and let the Automa do only the parts that were going to interact with the player. And I think it did that really well. One of the next things I look for is uh, maintaining those points of interference and not being able to be exploited too easily on those points. So it should race you for goals. It should steal scarce resources. It should block you at worker placement spots. It should fight back if you're trying to do something. I like having a clear win condition with varying difficulty. I think the clear win condition in many games is the thing you're looking for, is, is a way to measure up, you know, when did I win or not? and to not just have a solo mode that is beating your own high school. Yeah, that's uh, that's something we've talked about a lot with uh, with other games in the past, is how we've had a bit of trouble with, with well, I, specifically I've had a bit of trouble with games like Roads and Boats, where there's a sort of set score to beat and stuff. It's, it always feels a bit nicer to beat an opponent, and I can see why you like the Pax Automa, which is has the same sort of overall goal as a player, which is to get victory points in the dominance checks. For sure. Actually, interestingly, there's some some games. So the Gaia Project, Automa gets a lot of praise, and I think it's pretty good. But one of the funniest things that I think happened with the Gaia Project Automa is it's basically a beat-your-own-high-score deck, but it accrues points by flipping cards and then just rewarding it points. So you'll flip a card and it will say, get three points. And it's almost a deterministic process. You could just basically shuffle up the deck at the beginning of the game and flip through the whole deck for the duration of the game and determine the Automa's final score within a couple endgame goals. But because it breaks them up action by action over the course of the game, it feels somehow like it's you know trying to keep up with you or you're trying to catch it or something <laughs> like that. Even though it's, it's basically a beat your high score mode where it gets two to five points per turn over the course of the entire That's game. interesting. Yeah, thanks. I think we'll, <laughs> it's a very highly recommended one. So uh, yeah, thanks. We'll, we'll happily accept all the hate for that. <laughs> it, it is it's pretty good, but it, it has a couple 
it has a couple things that are maybe not that one action in particular takes a lot of time to do if you try and follow it exactly precisely. I just want to circle back to that now that you've brought it up again, the time thing. Would you say PAX is a fairly not intensive one for time? Because I mean, obviously, no. for a new player especially, it's insanely time-consuming. I it mean, I, I, I was using a flowchart when I was playing to work out the card to radicalize, like literally a flowchart that I found on BoardGameGeek. And yeah, it's, you have to learn the game and then another version of the game for the AI. So there's that in terms of setup. But do you ever, when you played, I know you haven't played very much as well, but did you ever reach a point where you just knew, like you flipped over the card, it said radicalize, and you just went, oh yeah, I know, I know what's, you know, I know exactly how that's going to work in this situation. Yeah, I don't consult the rules anymore for it, but okay. I think I did for quite a while. And I would say it's definitely one of the most complicated automa I've ever played. Yeah. And it has it, it breaks the rules and has in so many different ways. There's there's FAQ questions online about how it handles things like like it has a temporary loyalty, but that temporary loyalty doesn't affect its rule in the same way as you would expect. And it's willing to assassinate its own court members, but only under certain conditions. And it, and it really has a lot of weird corner cases that it doesn't it doesn't play nicely. It it almost I'll say with all of the my ideas about what makes a good automa, it reminds me almost of of like an old sports video game where you might create your own character and you'd have a limited number of you know points to spend in the character statistics. So you could make a, a wide receiver that was you know incredibly fast and great at catching the ball. And they're, they get blown over by a windy breeze because you've spent all of your points in other areas. And so you have an incredibly weak player who's very fast and great at catching the ball. And it feels like there are many automa that don't do good in some areas, but they haven't earned it. And I think that the Pamir automa is very complicated, but it earns it. Like it, so it, it makes up for it by being so phenomenal for you in, 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 in other areas. That's, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's definitely not a simple one, no. but, but but yeah, it is. I do think that it that it sort of just, it, it justifies the complexity that it brings, and certainly within the context of the game itself. I actually spent more time learning the Wakan than I did learning the rules of the game. There's a wonderful YouTube series by Modern Cardboard, which we will link in the description. And if you're new to the game, I would definitely recommend if you learn better by watching playthroughs rather than reading the rules. I count myself amongst that that group of people. But yeah, I got the rules for PAX Premier 2nd Edition very quickly, and I was ready to play. I asked a lot more questions about the Khan than I asked about anything else. And would you, would you say that's fair as well, Steve? Yes, definitely. There are definitely, the rules for the game have some weird corner cases about where you put coins and things like that when when the market is in a particular state, but... But yeah, I think Wukong is quite a bit more complicated to operate than the core games. Yeah. The thing is with that, it, it makes the... When you start realizing, learning the rules, it, it makes you realize that there are some things that the Wakan just can't do that you would need to account for with another player. So it, it even further pulls it away as a, a dummy player because it's it's so different, like I kind of hinted at earlier. It's, it's almost completely alien to being a player. Um, I really like what you said about the idea of it being meant to represent more than one player but even that it it feels like it is just a a force of nature in the game where everything's topsy-turvy and works really differently and personally I'm not sure if I think that's a good thing at all I mean I'll I'll have to play it more but the last game I played I started to really hone in on some of the 
sort of quirks of things it can't do, like moving spies on the card, or it won't move armies unless you have a tribe adjacent. And I started to realize, wait, I can I can break this really easily. And I didn't I didn't break a sweat that whole game. I just I scored every dominance check and flew ahead. That's interesting. I don't think I've I don't think I've got there yet because I'm still finding it a really, really difficult challenge. I'd be interested to know where you are with that one, Steve. Yeah, I, I think, again, I think that there are there are so many places where, as you say, m- mechanically, it would be difficult to create a system that makes all of the right decisions in those moments, but most of them also have readily available thematic justifications that Wakan almost doesn't even notice you. And if you have a powerful tribe show up on the map, she'll walk over and stamp it out, but she's not going to go start fights between the different armies when she's able to use them all to benefit you. Or if you have particular characters show up in a city that she's sending out spies in, she might come and mess with you, but she's not going to go hunt you down. She's just not that interested in you. And and so you're, again, the, the, this evocative sense of being swept up into a larger conflict and trying to eke out more influence than maybe you deserve is a very sort of David and Goliath sense that you have, I think, in that game. And exploiting that is part of the the play that she introduces yeah that makes a lot of sense i like that idea of it being a kind of david and goliath battle where you with a sort of weaker arsenal are using the only other weapons you have available to you which is the sort of intelligence you gain from knowing what they're going to do and what they can do and looking at the the board looking at the air the the market and working out okay well what don't i want to let them do um to your advantage and sometimes it's not achievable right sometimes you think okay well this game i'm i know i'm not going to let them take x action but depending on the flop of the market some of that is out of your control i was thinking this when steve was talking about that feeling of right they're going to put a load of spies out but I, i i'm just going to make my tribe dominant and i thought well, yes, but if if the actions and cards are available, but if they're not, you have to try and come up with some other way or buy yourself some time until those actions do become available because it's not always in your hands. And I think that's one of the things that makes it completely justifiable. Uh, I don't think, personally, I mean, I haven't experienced it, I don't think the AI is so exploitable that you can always rely on taking the same strategy because of the randomized flop of the market, because of the the cards that she'll take and she always acts before you as 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 the first player as well so she can get up ahead of steam before you have a chance to to have a say you know that that's just that's just my two cents is there anything else you wanted to say about what makes a good automa yeah i've got two other uh, points on the list maybe so one, one of them that i would say and i almost flagged this as a maybe is that the automa acts responsibly this was actually a, a word that i have sort of made a heading in my own thinking about the game that y'all used a lot last week is saying, you know, should, should an Automa look at the board state and parse it and act in a certain way differently because of the situation that it finds itself in. And clearly Wakan does this in Pax Pamir and other games do this as well. But there are, there are a lot of games and, and I've designed some of them. I play some and really like some that don't do very much of this where the Automa deck comes down to flipping a card and resolving an action and it doesn't take the game state into account sometimes it tries to buy silly things or it you know is going to take an action that isn't going to profit it much or that isn't blocking you at all and you're going to get you know all of the first 
best options because it did something silly. And that's why it's kind of a maybe for me is sometimes I think games depend upon that and a multiplayer game experience requires a, a player who's going to you know steal your best option out from under you. And sometimes I just want a game to hold enough tension against me and allow me to kind of explore the game. And it doesn't necessarily require that. The, the feeling of the multiplayer game might be, well, this is a, a sort of random things happen game and other people are going to sometimes take what I want, but I can still just do the actions that I am interested in. And so maybe the Ottoman doesn't always need to parse the game state. And I think sometimes I'm okay with that. Sometimes I prefer that it does that. That's an interesting one because we did mention it last episode. And I think where we'd land on it in the end was that sometimes if you want a really involved Ottoma that will take into account the game state, then it will increase the complexity of the Ottoma and the amount of time it takes to resolve their turn. And I suppose, well, having not designed one, you might be able to, to back me up here. I suppose it's a bit of a balancing act. How do you keep the time low but keep its you know responsiveness, I guess you could call it, high and realistic? I'd be interested to know, because I haven't played Garth or the Atoma for Gugong, so I was just wondering how you went about solving that problem, I suppose. Yeah, it's definitely an aspect of Automa design that I think is in the most direct tension with having the simplicity of the Automa and the responsiveness to player actions of the Automa feel like maybe the biggest tension between the two. So Garth and Gugong both lean pretty far to the side of being very simple. The Garth Automa is mostly going to flip a card and then take an action. And it will do a bit of responding to player actions. The way, the way sort of Garth was designed and, and this sort of loops into the, the sort of next thing I look for that I'll, I'll mention in a second about Automa is that the, the Garth Great Western Trail Automa picks a sort of profession to specialize in. And so it will either decide to focus on building or advancing its train infrastructure or getting lots of cowboys to buy lots of cattle. And it will pick one of those three to sort of focus on. And it will take more actions of that type and make more hires of that type. And if you try and crowd it out of that market, it will eventually switch its focus. That's really cool. And, and this, this sort of loops into the, I don't know where I'm in my list, maybe sixth thing, which is that I love it when those systems can sort of create a simulated narrative to the game mm. and give sort of personality and feeling. And that, and that has been something that I have focused on a lot in all of my designs is how do I make the, the auto act in a special way this game? And so you can have a feeling at the end, like, man, he was pressing on those cattle the whole game. I'm not surprised that he got 35 points out of cows this game, because that's what he was going for. And I think to some extent that narrative can almost supersede some of the responsiveness. And if it feels like the Automa has a strategy that it's sticking to and pushing hard for, then you don't mind as much feeling like it's just taking random things because it feels more like it's pursuing its own strategy. That feels very much like, I don't know if this is something you were, you were, you were gunning for, but it feels very much like how another player plays. Like that does feel like how when you play against another player, they will, it's very rare that somebody will just take a scattergun approach to everything. You know, you get a little bit of that, but it is almost like everyone sets up their own sort of specific goals or the specific area they want to excel at. And so that, that was a really lovely, lovely design choice, Steve. I, I like that a lot. You're making me want to play Garth now. I don't... <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah, the, the first in, in the Race for the Galaxy solo mode, this was 2008. It's so long ago. And if you if you haven't played it, I recommend it. Um, it feels like it would be fresh today among among the sort of Automa offerings. But you, you just roll a pair of dice to determine its action, and then it kind of runs its own thing. 
but it has a special focus based on the starting planet that it begins with. And so depending on the starting planet you pick, it will use modified versions of other actions in the game. And so it's funny because most of the modifications to its system based on its starting planet never actually interfere with the other player, with the human player. So the Automa is like off playing its own game that doesn't affect you at all. And it's taking weird, you know, sort of special flavored versions of its normal actions. And it, it never actually impacts you from most of the sort of flavoring in the game. It's all just kind of doing its own thing. But since seeing that in Race, that's really a, uh, a thing that I have, have preferred. And, I've, and, and in all the subsequent games I've done, I've included some version of that. So in, in Google, the way the, the auto works is the opponent, Mung, is a eunuch in the Emperor's court who has been privately contacted by the Emperor before the game and asked to help one of the officials in the region. And so he has a special action that he prefers to take, and he gets to take a more powerful version of it every time. And so there are, I guess, nine different ways that you can play against the Automa, where he's going to do a bunch of building the Great Wall this game, or he's going to go collect a lot of jade this game, or something like that. And depending on which special action Mung takes, you can play a very different game. And I love that that different feel to the game. That's such a simple fix, isn't it? You know? Just giving the Atoma a focus at the start of the game is such a simple fix for many of the, I guess, problems that I've experienced with other Atomas. You can all, you can justify when they make a less than clever move because they're chasing their own goals, like you mentioned earlier in the in the episode, Steve. So I think that's um yeah, it's a stroke of a stroke of genius. I really really like that. In some ways, it even kind of transcends playing multiplayer because i don't know if this is the same for you guys but when you're in the same gaming groups when you pull out the same games every time you know the norm's always going to take cattle in great western trail that's just what that's just what he do (laughs) (laughs) so it'd be really nice to have an ai that's going to mix it up every game and give you a different challenge that's really that's nice I will. I think the the Gaia Project AI definitely gets a nod here because they their system has a starting deck of cards that you always use as sort of the vanilla actions, and at the end of each round, a new card is shuffled in. Mm. And if that new card is moving up the tech tracks or something like that, you can you can find yourself in a game where based on the selections of the additional cards that have been added to the AI, it begins to specialize over the course of the game, and you get used to seeing these later adds to its, to its repertoire as it sees them as you see the cards each round. I think this is um, one point again where I'm going to have to throw a spanner in the works for the PAX AI because it does feel like this is another problem I had with it that it's almost like a hoover that just sort of takes all the low-cost cards for a lot of the game, especially when it's low on rupees, and doesn't really care what it gets. Like every game, it's the same. It just it will just take them all, just take whatever. Just give me those cards, give me those cards. And the only thing that sort of you have control over is the ones you choose to take away and the only real ones that are kind of contested there that you're going to want to make sure you scoop up the ones that match your your loyalty in case they ever become dominant so you kind of leave the other loyalties for them and i don't know if this was the same for you guys but i have never even considered changing my loyalty in a game against the Wakan, except for right at the start of the game when I'm not invested in my loyalty, because then they'll be spewing out armies and helping you out. So, all right, let's just just go to one of their loyalties they've helped out. And that's because the, there's no incentive for me to, because the cheap cards, the ones that like, for example, for the weaker armies, whereas in a multiplayer game, they just sit there and 
crew coins and give you a real kind of temptation to scoop them up for all the money that's on them because no one wants them. Nobody wants to switch to British army because there's no British armies on the board. So that card would just stay in the market. Whereas against the Wakan, they'll scoop it up at some point and then you don't have to worry about it. I guess I have an answer to maybe half of what you mentioned, but not all of it. So I'm hoping Steve will be able to help me out on this one. Um, but what I would say is what I tend to see with the Wakan is that it doesn't, you're quite right, it does hoover up without any sort of real care about specializing. But later on, because it accrues so many cards very quickly, I tend to find it's very, you very quickly have to start discarding for the Wakan. And because it has a clear list of priorities for what it wants to discard, it tends to keep the similar kind of cards. It tends to stick with political, etc. So that makes me think, okay, I really don't want to switch to the political suit now because the Otoma is now going to take a lot of extra actions. So I think through the process of discarding it, it's to Well, I'm just going just gonna to stop you there, Norm, because... Uh, the only thing that says the, the the way that card thing works is it, it just says political cards obviously which are f- sort of free in your court they don't take up one of your slots because they've mm-hmm. always got one one purple star and then it's just blanket patriot like it doesn't have a distinction of patriot that is the most dominant or whatever it's just any of the patriot cards which is the ones that match the the army so it's not really dependent on the game state it's just the value of the card to have in your court and again, I think that's another another point in that it just it plays the same every time. It doesn't ever evolve. There's never. I would love to see an automa. I know there's a lot of reasons why it wouldn't work, but I would love to see maybe a game where you're against two automas that have loyalties. That would be more fun than one that just has a an all loyalty. I think for me that is the the one mechanic in the game that makes me really disengaged with it. And I think it's because it, it kind of fundamentally breaks one of the core tensions and, and intrigues in the game, that blanket loyalty that it has. It does make it feel alien, and that has its own sort of merits, but it also is a real bugbear of mine. It feels like it, it breaks the game a bit too much. I don't know I don't know if I'm being too harsh there, but that's how I feel. Yeah, that's absolutely fair enough. For me, I think that the way it discards does make me feel like it's trying to specialise, and that's kind of good enough for me, it doesn't have to emulate a player to a perfect extent. And I'm not saying I'm not saying that you, that's what you're saying it needs to do, but um, I'm no. quite happy with that for me personally. One thing I can't answer because I've also not switched loyalties when playing against Wakan, so I'm wondering if Steve can sort of take this and uh, have, have. Do you find it beneficial to change loyalties when you're playing against Wakan, or is that something you you don't do as much? Yeah. I'll maybe and I'll maybe what I can say just on the on the question of variability. Like I I find that there are so many cards in the deck. I think this is a, this is not necessarily a strength of the design of Wakan in, in particular, but of Premier Second Edition in general, hmm. is that there are so many cards in the deck, and the subset of cards which like the game is not that long. I think most uh, I, I played a very long game last night that I think went eighteen turns. So Wakan and I both took about thirty six actions. And that's very long, I think. I think more common would be maybe 12 or 10. I, maybe that's short. But but when Wakan's taking you know 20 or 25 turns over the whole game, or sorry, actions, 20 or 25 actions over the whole game, that is not a whole lot of opportunity for churn. It, it feels like a lot when she's discarding one or two cards every turn. But her highest-ranked patriots that she acquires fairly early on are going to stick around for a lot of the game. And the political cards, which give her rule in particular areas, are going to stick around for a lot of the game. 
And I find in the multiplayer game, as in the solo game, that those early cards and how they affect the map and how they affect early attempts to play spies and betray can color a lot of the feeling of the game. And that's especially true when when you come by certain actions that are in higher that are at a higher power level. So if you open the game and grab a couple of cards that have a betray action and a movement action and place a lot of spies, you can begin going and assassinating Wakan's characters. And if, if you have a bunch of movement and army building, you could be playing a very map-based game. And I find that the variability that the PAX game contains in the box already as part of the, the multiplayer game shines pretty well in the Wakan game. That's not absolutely true because a lot of Wakan's sort of end game is the same and, and a, a lot of that openness kind of comes back to focus at a, a couple common lines. But I, but I do think that the, the subset of cards that you see will flavor a lot of the game. If you play a game that doesn't have many political cards and there's nothing purple coming up, then that's going to change the shape of the, of the yeah, game. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I totally agree that PAX is inherently a very replayable game. There's a lot of potential for different ways to interact in the game based on how the cards come up. And I think that for me, it was just a feeling of missing out. I felt like I was missing out on one specific and granted hypothetical because I've never played it without the Wakan, but moment of intrigue and tension where you get in, in, in my imagination and you'll have to tell me if I'm right or wrong with this, but in a multiplayer, I imagine you get a kind of backlog of the least desirable cards specifically for the loyalty. Cause you, it's important to point out for people who haven't played that you can't play a Patriot card without switching your loyalty to that Patriot, which then discards all the ones you already have in play and any gifts you've assigned to your Patriot. So it's a, a big cost if, uh, if you do it sort of partway through the game when you've already invested a bit of your engine in in the faction, the army that you're loyal to. So when those cards kind of sit in the market and, and begin to look really tantalizing, I could imagine that would be a really exciting part of the game, which just can't exist with the Wakan. I wonder how much that is something we need to just get over ourselves. Like, uh, I wonder if we see how much we stand to lose in terms of cards and gifts and we just get our loss aversion triggered. That is interesting, yeah. I already bought shares in your company. Why would I sell it stock? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I spent so long planning my trade routes for Grand Trunk. Exactly that, you know. That, that, is, a perfect, that is a perfect analogy, Steve, because when I, when I started playing 18xx, I was reluctant to sell my own shares because I have spent time investing in it. And I feel like it might be the same thing with Pact. I think I think certainly it would be a multiplayer, but I think with the Wakan, it absolutely kind of isn't. Unless the game state has evolved to a point where there is one clearly dominant faction, because the Wakan is also invested in that faction and likely, well, almost definitely more than you, even when you switch, because they get one automatically, every gift they get gets them an extra point towards the faction and then all the court cards they've been able to play willy-nilly because they don't have to if they play a patriot card of a different faction they don't have to discard theirs they can just keep all of them they can have as many as they want so it's very difficult for you as a player to switch faction and be the player that's going to benefit from that so the best thing to do really is double down on the faction you're already in and either make sure it's uh, there's no dominant faction or that you your faction is dominant yeah i definitely I definitely agree that you you rarely in the solo game, especially. But I think this is true in the multiplayer game also. Okay. 
You rarely want to switch your coalition loyalty when you're in a position of strength. If, if you have a successful dominance check and you clear the board of blocks and then Wakan comes out with the same pragmatic loyalty two turns in a row and just radicalizes four cards in a row and puts out, a, uh, you know, just drives one coalition to have seven blocks on the table and a dominance check is looming, you're going to go down 5-0 if you don't switch over to that coalition. And so it's it's easy to have her after a successful dominance check or at the beginning of the game, but you're a little more flexible then. Pull f- one faction so far forward that you have to switch loyalties or else you're going to lose the well, game. Here's, here's an alternative situation. Let's move it away from securing a, a successful dominance check. Is it worth switching if, let's say there's no dominant faction and the Wakan isn't, playing for a dominant faction either if you know that you if i can play this card which will switch my loyalty but it will also secure me the most cylinders and i can take the next dominance check surely that's got to be worth the few cards that it will cost you to do so and i think that's something i haven't even considered when playing the game i'm when when i look at my loyalty i'm always looking at potential switch because uh because i'm trying to secure a successful dominance check Hmm. but if there's not going to be one, why does it matter if you're going to lose two cards? Surely the the bigger benefit is getting the points now. I don't know. Maybe, like I said earlier, maybe that's just something I need to get over. I need to get over the fact that I'm going to lose a couple of cards in order to, to play the more beneficial one. Short-term versus long-term games. And I, I think that's a, a really interesting point of tension in the game anyway. And... Yeah, maybe maybe I personally don't change loyalty that much because I'm scared of what I'll lose. But yeah, maybe I should just rip that bandaid off and give it a go. Good point. It is. It is also a, as again as the narrative aspects go to the game. It's it's I think a very it's always an evocative moment if you find yourself there. Like if you're like, oh, I looking at this board now, I have made the British so powerful that they are that they will have a successful dominance check, but. They like Wakan more than they like me. And and so now what I have to do is, you know, wipe half my court and and throw my backing behind the Russians and get as many Russian blocks on the table as I can so that the British are no longer dominant so that I can try and get the upper hand in an incomplete or in a failed dominance check. This is a delicious moment to I think have to like work against, you know, your sort of team in order to get the edge on Wakan. It speaks to the heart of what makes Pax Premier really interesting is the changing loyalties and also something I was hoping to bring up and I hope you guys don't mind me, me talking about is the, the separation between you as a player and the pieces that are on the board. I really, really enjoy that. I, I enjoy so much that the armies you're placing are not you. They're not your avatar. You are not part of that army. They are just things that your avatar is manipulating in the same way that you as the player are manipulating as well. The level of abstraction is next to nothing in that sense because the performative connect between what you are doing as a person by manipulating these pieces and what your avatar do is, is doing also in manipulating these armies is spot on. And I think that's one area where Pax Premier really, really shines and yeah, I thought it was absolutely electric to play. I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, totally agree. It's, uh, it's uh, I think it's a really, uh, really fun game, and I, I, I'm definitely going to look to play it a, a lot more for sure. 
One question I was hoping to ask as well, Steve, is obviously we spoke about artificial players in general in the last episode. Looking at, obviously, Atomodex specifically this episode, these Atomodex seem to be the kind of standard now. If someone says this has an Otoma or an, or an AI opponent, the first thing I think of is a, is a deck of Otoma cards. How has that come about? What do you know? What is why why Atomodex is I guess my question. Why is has this become the the standard in the hobby? Or or has it? Am I wrong in in saying that? I think it has. I mean, I think that you know you know with with a lot of simpler games, I think that like Patchwork has a solo mode, a fan made solo mode that is a sort of procedural thing. Or I've read some different drafting games that have a solo mode. That, that will be like you can draft by yourself and one of the um, we actually have a there's a there's a game we published called ecosystem it's a simple little drafting game where you pick animals and then you arrange them in front of you in a four by five grid and they score based on their neighbors so bears like to be next to the bees or the fish or fish like to be next to the stream and stuff like that and someone made a bgg fan mode for that that is basically you know draft take five cards and take any number of them but then the next set of five cards you take the sum of the amount you picked in the first hand and the amount you picked in the second hand has to add up to five. Nice. And it's the kind of thing where it's like, that's so clever uh, as such a, it, it, like it's, it's a, you explain the system in 10 seconds and someone can play the game like that, but it doesn't, it's a beat your own high score mode. And that's, you know, it's not an automa, but that's, but it's a very elegant solution to card drafting. And you have the sort of uncertainty of what you're going to see. And I think that there are systems like that but I think when you get into the fair of Euro games that have easy to quantify points of interaction and semi-random moves, especially in worker placement games, where people are going to do things to get in your way or to race to a certain goal, it's just it's such an easy thing to do is to, to make a system that does something like that. It's pretty cheap to produce. And again, like I think for a lot of people like me, where, and I believe y'all ended last week talking about the idea of internal and external rewards. For people like me, where where my goal in playing a medium weight Euros solo mode three times is not necessarily to, to do what I would do with a game like Spirit Island, which is binge play it 50 times in a month <laughs> and burn out on it. But I, I just want to explore the game system. I want to see what's going on in there. And so what I need is someone to... to invisibly sit across from me and sometimes block the actions that I have to respond to and sometimes take the resources that I was going to take and give me a point goal that sort of determines, you know, my score target for that game. And if we're playing a game that's flush with resources, then we're both going to score higher or with something like Great Western Trail, where the, the game length is player is, is variable a longer game will score higher and a shorter game will score lower, but often more competitive players score lower in shorter games. And so I need someone to kind of keep keep time with me, keep the score count up with me. And, and if all I'm looking for is just to sort of explore the system and get a feel for the game, I don't necessarily need a super complicated system to learn. I'm completely happy to have a stand-in opponent who's just going to mess with the board and not take too much of my attention. Yeah. And I think a really nice shorthand as well, you know, there's lots of these sort of shorthands we use as, as gamers the longer you're in the hobby. If I said to you, what if I were to teach you to a game and say, start by saying, this is a deck building game, for example, you would already have a very clear idea of 
what you're physically going to be doing in the game. You're going to be shuffling cards and cycling through a deck and adding more cards as you go. Atoma decks have kind of become a part of this shorthand, list of shorthands that we as gamers have. And I think it's interesting if I'm learning a solo game like Anachrony, where the Chronobot is quite unique in the way the actions work. I have to sit and, and really read the rules for that. If I know it's an Atoma deck, I already have a very clear image in my head that I'm going to take the top card and I'm going to read what it says and, and do as it says. So I think it also helps for getting to grips with these games a lot quicker as well. And it's I think it's cool that we have this as like a like a standard. It's good for accessibility. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, I think also it's um, the you can communicate a lot of information with a card. And I just want to shout the Wacan's phrases for a moment and say that, you know, the way it lays out the information on the card is really cool. Like the arrows and the, the it points to the next card in the deck, the face down card, which has a bunch of information on the back and it has arrows pointing to the numbers on there, which tell you which card it might want to buy from the market and things. You can communicate a lot with a card. And you were talking earlier, Steve, about the, one of the most important things, and you've said this before as well, Norm, is that the action of the automa should be very not intensive. And just flipping a card is pretty simple to give you all that revealed information in one motion. It's very nice. The, the cards in that game, and again, Gaia Project does this very well, communicate a ton of information with very little stuff. There's not a lot to read, and you can look up what you need to when it comes up. In, in Premier in particular, looking up what region is kind of tedious because you have to say, you know, okay, what, where can I build roads to? Circle hexagon, pointy star, or whatever. And then you look over and try and see which one has priority. But but it definitely packs a lot of information on those small cards. And I think having the information spread across the two cards helps with that because it just saves on that little bit of extra space. It just looks a little less cu- uh, cluttered. And I think those things are important. This might be something I, I mislearned and learned it wrong. I had to relearn it. But I think that the information applies to multiple things as well. Is that right? The top and bottom doesn't just apply. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, which I think is really cool that they, that they use one word to apply to multiple different situations in the game that need to be resolved for the AI. Yeah, I think like left, the saying left will tell you where Wakan radicalizes into her court and also which opponent she would attack in a three-player game. Genius. <laughs> it's like they're looking that way. They're looking to the left. <laughs> I think to kind of come back around to the, the prevalence of Automa decks, I, I think it's historically it's hard to overstate the importance of the Automa Factory and Stonemeyer putting such an emphasis on well-tested, cogent, easy-to-learn solo modes for their games. I know that's been a huge feature of their games, is putting together uh, these excellent solo modes that design their own system. And I think that's brought in a lot of solo players into this kind of game. And so because that's the sort of grammar that the Automa Factory and Stonemeyer have introduced, I think that's become very popular and almost standard in the industry as people follow that model. Yeah, I think you're right in just giving it a word, calling it an Otoma, giving it a title gives people something to remember and identify with. And I think, yeah, you're absolutely spot on. As we go Kickstarters and they'll say, you know, we're going to include a solo mode, they'll have an Automa deck. And the people love that. They know exactly what they're going to get. Super. I just wanted to quickly ask, so for for anyone listening who's interested in maybe following this thing or has already started designing their own automas and is interested in making their own automas, is there any tips you could give that sort of you wish you knew when you started designing them? Any places you like to start when you're designing your automa decks? Is there yeah. any sort of top tips you'd throw out there? Sure. I'd reiterate this, that it's such a good, uh, I used to be a, a high school teacher and I so often would, I would talk to students and they would say, I would like to direct Hollywood movies. Mm-hmm. 
And I would say, oh, okay, so like, what kind of movies have you done at home? Like, well, I've never done anything like that. But that's what I'd like to do, you know, professionally someday. Like, I bet you would. Well, it's a great, like, if you're interested at all in board game design, it's such a great way to to be able to kind of get your feet wet in really small ways. And and so one of the things I would check out would be the um, the Morton Peterson article on, I don't know the title, but it's on on BGG and, and maybe you all can link it, where he just kind of talks through the, the general process. Um, but picking a game, and I would start with a simple game, you know, make an October for Love Letter, or I was, I was even thinking about, just as an example, to kind of walk through the steps of something like that. I don't know if, if y'all are familiar with King Domino. It's very popular, yeah. but played it before. Yeah. Well, you can do something with King Domino, like you can, you can sit down and say, what are all of the points of interaction in this game? And so if you're playing a competitive game of King Domino, it's like, well, there's, there's drafting, and then there's, you know, hate drafting, that you can take something that somebody else needs, or they can see what you need. And then you have to play your own mini game of kingdom management. And you're trying to build your puzzle right and not screw up how you lay the dominoes and run off the side. And you want to not, you know, get stuck with a huge region that has no crowns. And so you're playing your own internal game. And so the automa could take a back seat for that bit. Yeah. So the automa doesn't need to manage a kingdom. You don't need to do that. And, and in fact, as you kind of said, that because these things are not going to be able to make human decisions, they almost always have to cheat in some way. And so you could say, well, what do you not need to do? You don't need to build the Automa's kingdom for it. You just tell, you just make the rule, the entire Automa kingdom is connected. So every lake spot it has is connected. They all, all the crowns apply to all the lake spots. Its final score is going to be assuming that everything was put together correctly. What does the Automa need to do? It needs to draft against you. And so how do you make an Automa draft against you? Well, this is easy enough. If it gets second pick, it doesn't, you know, it has no decision to make. It's just going to have the later pick. But if it gets first pick, which one is it going to pick? And then you could say, well, what kind of things would make sense? So maybe it would look and say, if I have the most crowns of a certain kind, pick that thing just to block me. If it has a whole bunch of territories of a certain type, pick that thing. And you could just write out a list of like 10 of those conditions on note cards and then shuffle them up. And you could play solo king domino like that. You could just say, well, here is the most common interaction point, really the only interaction point is drafting things that make sense and it needs to draft according to a particular strategy and so you can write a list of conditions that fit that and it maybe will mess up your strategy sometimes and so you could write a list of conditions that fit that and then every time the automa needs to make a a selection of where to place its little meeple uh you just flip a card over and if that condition applies you do that thing and and you have a you know if you have an exhaustive list of conditions that it says if you have at least three territories of a type that has a crown, pick that. If the human player has three crowns of a certain type, pick one that has crowns of that type. And if neither of these is true, pick the topmost tile. And you just make 10 cards like that, you flip them over, and you can, you know, in 10 minutes, you can put together a King Domino Automa. And you could play a simple game where you've, you know, you've discovered what are the main points of interaction, what shape should those interesting decisions take. And then how do you create a basic set of rules to kind of fill out the game and, and give the Automa a way of scoring and seeing if you've won or it's won. And I think doing a tiny exercise like that, just as practice, is a really easy way to do it. And then you can pick, you know, a, a sort of, medi- I mean, I think medium weight work replacement games are really good for that. And, and just kind of saying, okay, what are the points of interaction? How is the Automa going to make decisions? What are the trickier decisions it needs to make on its turn? And where can I just ignore this can I cut money out of the game for the automa? Can it, um, you know, just always be assumed to have enough 
you know, whatever, of a, of a resource to do a particular action or something like that. And then you just kind of iterate and you say, does this feel fun? You know, how do I, how do I make it have different flavors or mess with my game somehow? How do I make interesting decisions where I'm going to see what kinds of things it might do on its next turn and respond accordingly? That's some really good advice. Like, I feel like you just made a, a King Domino Automa for us live there. That was that was really interesting. Yeah, I hadn't, I had, I'd never seen it as such an easy process to just get started and then try it and see how see if it's fun like you say that would be awesome okay well thank you so much for all of that steve that was absolutely perfect really enjoyed listening i think however that's probably enough for pax premiere and Atomidex in general probably a good time to transition to the part of the show where we look at the responses we got from last episode and ask you guys a new question for this one scruffy what's the question for this episode so the question this episode is what is a time where an AI has taken the worst possible move for you it could have in a turn? And uh, following on from that, did you enjoy that experience? So, Norm, uh, let's hear about the responses from last episode. Great. So we've got a couple. The first one is from Peter. Hi, Peter. Hope you're well. Thank you so much for writing in. We love your enthusiasm. So it says, hi, Norm. Here's my answer for this week's question. Uh, question being, what is your favorite Atoma deck from the last episode? It says, when I play against Atoma decks, I really like when they are implemented digitally. It makes the bookkeeping even easier. I also like how the game and the artificial player, and he's put, I thought you'd appreciate this, Scruffy, he's put a little trademark in, in brackets, a little TM. <laughs> next to artificial nice. player. <laughs> are more separate. Um, so for, for what, what he uses there is... Uh, a website called Myotoma. Now I will put the link to that in the description, but he's uh, he's linked that in the in the email there. It says usually I much prefer Atoma decks that are very low maintenance, but I have one exception. I really like the Gaia Project AI because there are six different opponent factions, and the deck works differently for all of them. It's done by an injection of a section that gives you direction. Wow. Let me read that again, because that's a lot. <laughs> There's a bit of a tongue twister for you there, Norm. Tongue twister. He, does, he actually apologizes for it. He says sorry in brackets. But <laughs> yeah, let me read that again. It is done by an injection of a section that gives you direction on how to trigger the faction action. <laughs> I feel like he's messing with you with this one. <laughs> yeah. You know earlier when I said thank you for writing in? <laughs> <laughs> I take that back. <laughs> no, he says he does. He actually apologizes for that. But um, wow, try saying that five times. Okay, he says this makes the opponent feel very authentic. There is a German solo podcast where they invited someone who played five hundred games against that deck, and he thought it was very balanced and clever, and put up an interesting opponent every game. On the flip side, Gaia Project is a game where the Atoma actions are not always obvious and you have to check through a nested list of priorities where or what the Atoma will build. So you get authenticity, but the Atoma deck means work for you as the player. Just a shout out to games with very good low-maintenance solo Atoma decks, like Great Western Trail, and he notes Garth in that, Steve, so that's pretty cool. He also mentions uh, Trajan and Paladins of the West Kingdom goes on to say, I really like your discussion about the feel of the artificial player and about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. Yeah, what an awesome email. What did you make of that one, Scruffy? 
Yeah, there's uh, lots of good stuff there. It's nice to hear a shout out for, like you said, uh, Guy Project. Uh, Steve, you mentioned that was really good. And uh, obviously your own Automa, Gaff. Uh, I haven't heard of the other two. Have you Have you heard of either of those, Steve? Uh, I, I have not played them. I've heard of, I mean, I've heard of the games. I don't know much about the solo Yeah, but uh, another really interesting answer to our questions. Thank you so much. Yeah, Gaia, Gaia Project does that thing really well where the, even if it doesn't affect you at all, and they usually do affect you, but the, the turn logic of the opponents that you're playing against are determined by what faction you're playing. And so you get a little bit of personality in your opponent, um, which goes a long way, I think, in feeling like, you know, you have someone who cares about something sitting next to you at the table. But I also, I definitely agree with, I think, Peter's response that there, there's there's one action in that game, building a mine, where I almost had to check the rule book every time. And I think they sometimes suggest using like little markers on the map to, to try and, you know, if it's like the nearest mine within a system that does this and potentially fulfilling this objective, it's not within fewer than three spaces from one of you. And you just go, it's just... You begin doing this process of elimination. So you have like, okay, we've got four that qualify in that term and we can oh take all that single action. And it's almost too bad because if the rule had just said, put it in a place that kind of makes sense to you, it would be about the same 95% of the time. It does sound a bit a bit like a one little caveat on the, on a really good sounding system for sure. And we didn't really talk much in the episode about the personality and the personability of that can come from an automa. But that's a, it's really interesting. It sounds like, Guy manages that. I think Pax does that really well with its. Uh, I think for me, just the uh, obviously what you said before about it feeling like um, an, another force coming at you, but I think also just the fact that it has a court, like you have a court. It has even if uh, and because in fact they are so diverse and and by the end of the game really powerful all the cards in its court it has a very distinct personality for sure, and and that personality is intimidating. <laughs> I can second that for sure. The next person who wrote in wrote in on Reddit and their username is the dark side underscore 92. They wrote in saying, Great podcast. Just started listening this week. Really liking how you guys are more on the Euro spectrum. Makes for a nice contrast to some of the other podcasts I listen to, which tend to favor more thematic games. Can't wait for the Anachrony solo expansion to come out so I can get it to the table. If you haven't tried it already, I highly recommend trying out Gaia Project. <laughs> uh, another recommendation for Gaia Project. They say it's a wonderful tactical brain burner with easily the best Atoma implementation today. So one thing that's come out of this episode is I really should try Gaia Project. <laughs> it, it wasn't on my list to try. I've played Terra Mystica. I enjoy it somewhat, but I didn't feel compelled to try Gaia Project. However... After this episode, after all the recommendations, I think I should probably give it a go, at least on tabletop sim, right? Yeah, I mean, does the AI, does Terra Mystica have an AI that works similarly? Because I understand the games are pretty similar, but I imagine there's quite a few nuanced differences there. I, I, I don't know. That would be interesting to see. Obviously, I haven't played Guy Project same issue, but I have played Terra Mystica. But yeah, if we, uh, well, when we revisit AI again in the future, maybe that will be the one that we unpack although i am very tempted i hear um i hear great western trail has a, a good ai as well so that might be <laughs> brilliant well thank you so much for writing in we really really appreciate it so i think that kind of wraps up the episode steve thank you so much for joining us i hope you enjoyed yourself 
Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been really awesome having you, Steve. You've uh, brought a lot of uh, insight and intellect the the podcast that we uh, we rarely see. So that's uh, really, really awesome of you. And thank you for spending the time with us today. Just before we wrap up, if you'd like to contact the show, you can contact us by email. Email address is alwaysplayer1podcast at gmail.com. We're also available on Facebook and Instagram. Links to both are in the description. Our Instagram username is at alwaysplayer1podcast. And we're also on Reddit. Again, links are in the description. But it's always underscore player underscore one. We hang out in the solo board gaming subreddit quite a lot, so do look out for us there. Shoot across any messages you want. And uh, remember to answer this week's question, which was, Scruffy, one more time. The question this week is, what is an example of a time when an AI has taken the worst possible move for you in a game and scuppered all your plans? And did you enjoy that experience? Brilliant. Um, Very quick note before I let you listeners go. If you want to support us on Patreon, we do run a separate little mini podcast called Planning Phase. It's a behind the scenes look at how we choose the next episode. We actually already know what we're covering on episode 14, and that is because we discussed it in the most recent episode of Planning Phase as a patron exclusive, but any tier you select will give you access to that. So go ahead and uh, find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash always player one podcast. And again, the links are down in the description. I think that's everything for now. Uh, Thank you guys for joining us and we will catch you in two weeks. Yeah, thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks again, Steve. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support the show, don't forget to check out our Patreon page. The links to that are in the description. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Always Player One. Until then, reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or by email to keep the conversation going.